Well, anyone who likes to take road trips, especially long ones, will tell you that the energizing part of a road trip is really on the front end, right? Striking out on the journey. It's full of anticipation. What will come of this trip? We are unsure what we might encounter. It's the drive home. It's the long journey back that we dread. So about 10 years ago, Teresa and I were in Birmingham uh, visiting family at Christmas, and we decided in going back home where we were living at that point to Denver, Colorado, that we would just uh, do the journey in one single shot, which is 22 hours of driving. Now, many of you have driven that long, and if you have, you know that it is inevitable that you will end up driving through the night, which is simple math, 22 hours. Driving through the night can be great, right? You miss all sorts of traffic. It's smooth sailing. Eventually, though, all you want in the world is for the sun to rise, to see the light of day. In this situation, you do whatever you can to stay awake. You cycle through multiple albums and podcast audiobooks. You put on an album of ACDC and you crank it. You shake your head as you start nodding off. You open the window and let the cold winter air hit your face. Anything to get to the sunrise. And then you realize that it's only 2 a.m. and you have three hours left to go in the darkness. The sunrise cannot come soon enough. Maybe you've experienced this. Question for you. If there is a morning to the darkness of our nocturnal road trips, is there a morning to the darkness of our lives and our times, to the watching and the waiting in the midst of trials or in the midst of busyness or medical ailments or more? Is there? Will the sun rise? Our gospel from Matthew this morning describes a cultural and a historic moment when the Jewish people were and had been waiting in a long, dark night. They had been persecuted. They had been enslaved. They had been exiled twice. For that matter, they had been mistreated. And into the midst of this history, many would-be messiahs claimed to be inaugurating the kingdom of God and their promises never materialized. To misquote T.S. Eliot, this is so often how our waiting ends too, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Imagine the impact of hearing then with all of this history still fresh on the memory of the Israelites. What John the Baptist says, this ruffian prophet, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Is this the moment they would think? Is the sun rising? In the words of our children, are we there yet? That sounds like good news. Now, if it's not clear what John the Baptist is saying, he's pointing to a famous passage from Isaiah. It's a kind of Casey Kasem's greatest hits of the Old Testament. It's an ancient Near Eastern equivalent of all of creation arriving home after a long night of darkness. And many Jews would have known this passage with its promises of every valley being lifted up and every mountain being made low. But Isaiah's promise 
It's not the sunrise, it's the promise of the sunrise, which is to say, it's what John the Baptist is talking about, pointing those would-be disciples towards. You see, we're not at Christmas yet. We're hanging out with a wild man of God clothed in camel skin, and we're watching and waiting, stumbling along the path or the interstate, the way towards the sunrise, and beckoned to help prepare that way, even in the midst of our fatigue or our desperation or our anger or even our joy and all the goodness that we see around us. I wonder, what are you watching and waiting for? A repaired relationship, a positive medical report, a business deal, a nap, Relief from depression or anger or pain. You know what waiting does to us? It makes us uncomfortable. Especially when we think that something ought to be happening. In our culture, waiting really, it just rubs against the grain of what we seem to value. And so when we are forced to wait... I think there are two different tracks that we slide into, two different postures that we inhabit or we take on. The first is activism. We highly regard activists because they're energetic and ambitious and restless, calculating, rational, able to manage themselves and others, able to get stuff done. We love them because we don't have to wait on them. And there's nothing wrong with activism per se unless it eclipses eclipses the opportunity for us to learn how to wait on God. So the question, I think, when we are in this moment, when we are inhabiting this posture, is what do we in those moments tend to jump towards? To be attuned to our desires. What are they pointed towards? Food? Drink? Shopping? The list goes on, right? When we are in seasons of waiting... We should pay attention to the things that we give ourselves to. It says something about us. What grabs our attention? What sinful things or unhealthy rhythms do we slide into? Now, besides activism, there is another posture, I think, that we inhabit, which is resignation. That is, to be overcome by darkness and the fatigue of night, to lose hope and joy and peace, to think that the dark road trip will go on forever, to slide into anger or criticism or more. Resignation leads us further into the quicksand of despair because it recognizes only the brokenness around us, thereby severing our imaginations from hope. So there's a New Testament scholar named Craig Barnes, and he reminds us that hope arises out of the hard truth of how things are. That is that Christians, he says, we will always live carrying in one hand the promises of how it will be, and in the other hand, the hard reality of how it is presently. And to deny either is to hold only half the truth of the gospel. You see, the call of Advent, it's neither a call to activism or resignation, but to a prophetic hope that the sun will rise on the darkness. It is a call, in other words, to learn how to wait. And in our culture, where waiting in order to learn is anathema, there is nothing more revolutionary than learning to wait. 
But, I mean, seriously, what does waiting on God really mean if it's not going to be just a mere religious platitude or a, or a metaphor or something along those lines? Well, I submit that Advent waiting is summed up in John the Baptist's call in one word, prepare. The word prepare is the form that active and hope-filled waiting takes because Advent waiting is like waiting on a new baby to arrive where we are preparing our hearts and our homes and our families and our jobs and Nashville or the city we live in to receive the gift of joy that is on its way. It's almost born, but not yet. And this requires intentionality. Waiting understood in this way. It does not mean inactivity. It means hope-filled preparation. And I don't know what this looks like for you, but maybe it would require a refusal to say yes to every social event or to create the space for silence, listening, and reflection or giving up the need to have more precisely when we are headed towards the kind of precipice of jumping off into the ocean of consumerism. Waiting and preparing this Advent season might take the form of just going on a prayer-filled walk instead of one more trip to the mall. Preparing could take the form of honestly and openly acknowledging the pain of maybe having lost someone this last year or something instead of letting another denial-filled holiday go by because the brightness of the sunrise is known more fully when the darkness of the night is both acknowledged and named. The mystery of all this is that it took John the Baptist years of growing up, years of hanging out in the wilderness even, before he could actually prepare the way of the Lord. And I suspect that might be the case for us too. I know it is at least for me. That is, there is no formula. There is only waiting on the sun to rise, preparing for it like waiting for a newborn or a Messiah. So I'd like to conclude uh, with a poem. This is a poem written by Jan Richardson, and it's called Prepare. And I wonder, as I read this poem, if there might be a word that kind of lodges in your heart, that that clicks with your experience at this point. Prepare, she writes. Strange how one word will so hollow you out. But this word has been in the wilderness for months For years. This word is what remained after everything else was worn away by sand and stone. It is what withstood the glaring of sun by day, the weeping loneliness of the moon at night. Now it comes to you, racing out of the wild, eyes blazing and waving its arms, its voice ragged with desert, but piercing and loud as it speaks itself again and again. Prepare. Prepare. It may feel like the word is leveling you, emptying you. As it asks you to give up what you have known, it is impolite and hardly tame. But when it falls upon your lips, you will wonder at the sweetness, like honey, that finds its way into the hunger you had not known was there. We know that the sun does rise. It rises on the horizon of the rough road traveled in the night by a camel-skin-wearing, locust-eating ruffian who cries, prepare ye the way. 
You see, the reality of this life is that we will all prepare for something. We'll prepare for a marathon. We'll prepare for a date or a business meeting. We'll prepare for our loved ones arriving. The question posed to us simply by Advent and by John the Baptist is, will we, in hope-filled anticipation, prepare our hearts for God's arrival too? May the answer to that be yes. Amen.